0: This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Economist Michael Greenstone says the world is already paying the price for climate change. Areas in the US and around the world have experienced unusual heat waves, stronger hurricanes, bigger wildfires, and elevated mortality rates.
1: We're living with it. The question of whether or not to have climate change or whether or not we have climate change, that's gone. We now have it. And really, the decision that we're facing globally is how much of it to have. And, you know, what does this portend about the future?
0: He says we're just beginning to experience what the planet has in store, but there are solutions. Ahead, Greenstone, who leads the Energy Policy Institute at Chicago, talks about the cost of climate change. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas. The impacts from climate change may include mass migration and climate damages being spread unequally so that the poor and those living in hot regions are hit hardest. These are massive global problems. One solution, says Michael Greenstone, is to look at the social cost of carbon. It's the estimated dollar price to society for every new metric ton of carbon emitted. Greenstone co-led the development of the U.S. government's social cost of carbon as chief economist for President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Under the Trump administration, the value of carbon had fallen to as little as $1 per ton. Biden has raised it to $51 a ton, which is similar to the figure used by Obama. Greenstone speaks with Juliet Eilperin, a Pulitzer Prize-winning senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. They spoke on April 19th. Here's Eilperin. Welcome Michael. I'm excited to talk about climate
2: and economics with you. So, thanks so much for taking part in this conversation.
0: Thank
1: you, Juliet. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: And I wanted to start with an extremely broad question, which is, you know, there are m- multiple folks who say that we are already paying the price for climate change. But this is an extremely hard concept for many people, whether in the United States or in many cases overseas. To grasp so could you talk a little about to what extent we are seeing the economic impacts of climate change right now and are poised to pay a higher price in the years to come
1: i think the easiest way to demonstrate that we're paying a price for climate change is the you know i'm not gonna have the numbers exactly right but you know nine of the ten hottest years ever recorded or 10 of 10 or 11 of 10 of the hottest years ever recorded have been in the last 10 years uh, and that, you know, the scientists have linked, not one for one, but have linked uh, with climate change. And those higher temperatures produce all kinds of things. Uh, some are good, milder winters, but some are not so good. Uh, so, elevated mortality rates, the heat waves in the Pacific Northwest in the last few years, uh, the fires. Uh, there's increasing evidence or fingerprints of climate change on the strength of some of the hurricanes we're seeing. And so, we're living with it. Uh, I think the question of whether or not to have climate change or whether or not we have climate change, uh, that's gone. Uh, we now have it. Uh, and really the decision that we're facing globally is how much of it to have. And you know, what does this portend about the future? One of the features that makes us nasty is that what economists like to say is, there's a non-linear relationship between temperature change uh, and human well-being. And so what does that mean? It means for each little bit uh, of increases in temperatures, there's some on net damages around the planet, but that little, each little bit actually gets worse and worse. So, you know, going from a day where it's 70 degrees to 71 degrees, not so bad in terms of crops or uh, in terms of human health, but going from a day that's 95 to 96, that's a big deal. and so. We're just beginning to experience uh, what, uh, I guess, the planet has in store
2: for us. And as you alluded to, the cost of climate change and its impacts are not evenly distributed. So obviously, some regions, some segments of society bear a heavier burden than others. Could you talk a bit about... How this is is playing out again, both domestically and and overseas, and also how our understanding of this issue has advanced over time.
1: One of the most exciting things from a research perspective has been the explosion of computing power and access to data sets. Now, that's usually a conversation killer, uh, (laughs) but the reason that it's so interesting is it has allowed us to examine what the impacts of climate change might be. Uh, not in like you know, five, dividing the world into five regions like all of North America, all of Europe, uh, all of Africa, all of Asia, but actually in some work that I've been leading with some colleagues at the Climate Impact Lab, we've been able to divide the world into 25,000 regions.
2: So when you talk about that, how big is a is a given region? Uh,
1: a a region is like a U.S. county. Think of it as a U.S. county, uh, and so it's like kind of amazing. Like all this information gets. Unleashed that was kind of hidden in the aggregation of, oh, we're going to treat all of North America as the same, which on its face is crazy because, like, you know, climate change in Manitoba is going to be very, very different than climate change in El Paso. What begins to emerge are two very common sense things. But one, if it's already hot, not going to be so good, it's going to be worse. And if it's already really cool, then that's probably actually going to be slightly beneficial. And also what comes out of the data, screaming out of the data, is one of those insights that economists uh, are beloved for, which is that it's better to be rich. And so it's really the places that are poor and already hot that seem poised uh, to be, you know, face the largest climate damages.
2: So in terms of of how this plays out, I mean, for example, at a moment when, you know, certainly we in in the United States are having a conversation about environmental justice and what sort of reckoning we need to take into account when forming policy. What, you know, what do you think are some of the implications that, in other words, as I understand it, you know, a disproportionate number of poorer Americans are going to be affected by the impacts of climate change. And overseas, clearly, there are a number of poorer countries that are, are going to bear the brunt of these impacts.
1: Let's just focus. Suppose we only cared about the United States. Uh, attention that gets emerged there is how we as a society should think about climate damages being spread unequally. Uh, and do we care the same about a dollar of climate damages that happens to your employer, Jeff Bezos, or as a dollar of climate damages that happens to a low-income family? Uh, and to date, federal policy has really treated a dollar of damages the same, no matter who it happened to. And I think a lot of the environmental justice movement is raising questions about whether that's such a good idea, or that's fair. Uh, and I think there are opportunities to take on board this idea that we care much more about a dollar of damages that happens to, you know, a low-income family. Globally, the consequences are kind of like wild. In the following sense like if you look at a map of where the damages are going to be around the world what's really amazing is that you can see they're concentrated in the pretty hot regions and then when you go higher up in latitude and you see these large swatches of barely populated parts of the planet let's call them canada and russia and if you look at it it just seems like over the time span of decades there's just no way all the people are going to remain in the heavily populated places and not want to go to the lightly populated places. And how we handle that geopolitically, I have no idea. And, you know, the levels of political discontent about migration in Europe in the last decade, and then we're seeing more of that in the United States right now. I'm not talking about like day to day migration, but really mass movements of people. There's going to be a lot of pressure pushing in that direction.
2: Right. And that's actually one of the things that already in, one of President Biden's earliest executive orders, climate-induced migration is is one of the things that, in theory, the government is now gonna start looking at. I mean, it's obviously been raised in the past, but it sounds like it's gonna be examined in a more systematic way.
1: Yeah. You know, if we could just, one other thing, you know, just to highlight the inequality that I think yeah. really, like, it's striking to me is, you know, the whole Atlantic seaboard is going to be in trouble with respect uh, to sea level rise. And I don't know, uh, you know, you cover Washington, like what are the politics of deciding which parts to let go and which parts to keep? Like, I don't want any part of that decision. You can bet that we're going to spend every last dollar protecting Manhattan. But after that, I'm much less certain uh, about which parts of the Atlantic coast are going to, we're going to spend money protecting. And it just feels to me like an incredibly thorny and painful political problem.
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely one of the toughest things. I mean, and and I want to get to a subject near and dear to your heart, which is is carbon pricing. But, but before we do that, I just have a question. You know, there's the potential for disastrous impacts, which, you know, again, people talk in passing, but uh, have not yet fully grappled with. As someone who spends so much time writing and calculating the you know, possible economic impact of these things. And as someone who obviously has worked in the in the White House and, and has been at the heart of policymaking, do you have observations about why it's so hard for people to make rational decisions about, about this topic?
1: I guess so you could be you could mean domestically or you could mean internationally. Right. Uh, I think it's easiest to talk about it internationally, but whatever I'm about to say is certainly going to apply domestically too. Uh, yeah, you know, at its core, it requires a trade-off between how much income or consumption we're going to have today uh, and how much we're going to have in the future. Uh, and the problem is, is that we're at very unequal places right now. In the United States, on average, you know, we're a pretty rich country, uh, and so. Buying a little insurance against the future is not does not seem like totally impossible. But we've had our struggles with it. But like trying to sell the idea of really reducing consumption today or income today in the name of uh, benefits in the future in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, like that is a hard sell. And the reason is because like people are dying today of like basically being poor. You know that's a really really hard ask. And that difference in what economists like to call the marginal utility of consumption, just to bore all the listeners, but like how valuable an extra dollar of income is today in India versus in the United States is really an enormous driver of the political problems. That applies in the United States as well too. Like, you know, very wealthy people, it's not such a big deal. Less wealthy people are going to feel it much more strongly and, you know, uh, ultimately be resistant to it. So it's, it seems like differences in both the cost of dealing with it. Uh, and then the differences in exposure that I think are really make it kind of the problem from hell, to be honest.
2: And there's also the question of historic responsibility for emissions, right, which, which comes up all the time in international negotiations over how to go forward and who essentially has been emitting greenhouse gases in the past.
1: Yep, that is brought up all the time. I don't even think you need to go there, to be honest. You could just say like, we're, you know, if you're India or Pakistan, You know, you got problems today. Whatever was done in the past doesn't even really matter that much. It's not a does not appear to be a reasonable ask for the world to ask them to greatly reduce uh, their emissions today when their incomes are so low. We could bring up historical responsibility as well. But I I think just the current problem is really enough to make it a a very, very, very thorny. And, you know, I'll just come back to one other thing. Another part of this that like internationally makes it very hard is. When you look at the pathways for emissions, you know, the vast majority, I don't know, 70% or so, for the remainder of the century is supposed to come from to today's developing countries. And so, like, think about that. Th- that means, just set aside who's paying for it. That means that the world is asking the countries that need energy consumption, cheap energy consumption, the most, to make the reduction. That's a really hard ask.
0: This is Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's global problems are complex, entrenched, and intertwined. The Aspen Ideas team has partnered with the Skoll Foundation to produce a new podcast about solutions. Solvers features unconventional social innovators. Hear from infectious disease expert Christian Hoppe, activist and community organizer Alessandro Orofino, social entrepreneur and nonprofit executive Rodney Foxworth, and many others. The first episode drops April 22nd. Find solvers wherever you're listening now, and be one of the first to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.
2: Let's get on to carbon pricing. Let's start with just, again, the basis of why would one want to put a price on carbon, and how would it help solve this problem?
1: Okay, so the power of putting a price on carbon uh, is that really the enemy in all of this is carbon. And so why not penalize it? So when the Juliet household is spewing carbon all over the place, uh, shouldn't they have to pay a penalty for it? And then along with that is, well, how do we make sure for you know every dollar devoted to that, we get the biggest bang for the buck? And the challenge is, it's very, very hard to know that in advance. And so by putting a price, we kind of unleash innovation and creativity and let people figure out uh, w- what the cheapest way is and it invariably leads uh, to the largest reduction for every dollar of uh, expenditure.
2: Some listeners might be familiar with say the cap and trade program, which was what you know for example, Democrats were voting a-, a decade ago as the way to solve this problem. Could you talk a little about how it might be different from say first of all what's practices? In a number of states, and and how this would affect everything from say the you know gas that someone puts in their tank to what kind of electricity is powering you know your home.
1: There's two ways to have carbon pricing. The first is you could have a cap and trade where the government sets an absolute limit on the total amount of emissions, and, or the second is you just apply a tax or a price for every ton of uh, carbon that's emitted. Those will invariably raise the price of products that have carbon in them. So the way you could think of it is like a $10 carbon tax is about nine, 9 cents uh, per gallon of gas. And what is so appealing about that uh, is it causes people to see the damages that, that they're inflicting on everyone else. And slowly but surely people will then begin to, uh, to alter their choices and then you can see uh, reductions of carbon. Kind of the prototypical other way to do it, I like to think of as like the double bank shot approach. And, you know, I'm not very good at pool. I'm not so hot at shooting when it's direct, when I have a direct shot at the at the hole. But like when I have to use two bumpers to get there, I'm pretty bad. And so there, like, there's a whole range of policies that are kind of in the double bank shot category. Energy efficiency policies are ones. Tax credits for construction of uh, renewables are another. Uh, renewable portfolio standards are another. And they're just kind of on and on. and. A common feature of all of those policies is they don't actually directly target carbon. They target something that is related to carbon. Like if you lose less energy, then you probably use less carbon. If you give tax credits for building uh, renewable generators, then you know there'll be more of those. But whether or not there's less carbon kind of depends on well, what did those renewables knock out—a coal plant, or did they knock out a nuclear plant? If they knock out a nuclear plant, not so not so good. If they knock out a coal plant, uh, then that's great. And so, I would say the Achilles' heel of all of those policies uh, is that it's not so obvious what the impacts are going to be on tons. Uh, and the acid test for CO two policy is how many tons of CO two can be abated. That is, how many tons of emissions of CO two can we avoid doing? So when I think of climate policy, really what I think about uh, is tons, 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 how to get as many tons uh, abated as possible. What would the planet care about or what would our children or grandchildren care about? And at the end of the day, they're really only going to care about tons. Tons is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter how many uh, solar panels are installed. It matters how many fewer tons are. And it doesn't matter how many homes are weatherized. It matters how many fewer tons are. And these policies, because of double bank shot, you have to hit the bumper twice before you get to the CO2.
2: So you've obviously, um, you've described the so-called double bank shot. Obviously, if you look at, for example, what President Biden has outlined in his infrastructure proposal, there are plenty of examples of it right there. You alluded to some of them, whether it has to do with tax credits for new renewable energy, whether it has to do with potentially a a clean energy standard. Uh, Why is that so appealing when you are arguing that it is a less efficient and in some cases potentially flawed approach to cutting greenhouse gas emissions?
1: Okay, so I think, so first of all, the clean energy standard, which uh, no one knows exactly what form it will take, but if it were purely focused on carbon and treated all low carbon energy sources the same, then that's pretty close to uh, directly target carbon. So let's put that to the side. But the double bank shop policies, I think, you know, I've thought a lot about this. Like, why are people so uncomfortable with pricing? Uh, and I think at our heart, a lot of people really are kind of like engineers. Uh, and they don't really trust that through the magic of like facing penalties for polluting, people will change their behavior they kind of want to see touch and feel. And so they like, they want to be able to point to that solar panel there that got that tax credit or that house there that got uh, weatherized. And there's just kind of a mistrust of what markets uh, can achieve. And, you know, it's a couple centuries after Adam Smith uh, laid out the idea of the invisible hand. And I think it's that invisible hand relative to kind of an engineering see, touch, feel thing that is a major, uh, it's a major impediment. People just don't trust the markets to produce it.
2: I'm going to flip that around because I would argue that particularly having spent my career covering politicians, that there is in fact a sea touch feel element to the carbon tax that most politicians are profoundly comfortable with, right? Which is this idea that there's a reason why gas prices, for example, have been historically one of those politically fraught arbiters of how politicians are doing, how in, again, the 2008 campaign, which obviously you're well-versed in, where Barack Obama was put in a really difficult spot as gas prices went up, and John McCain, in fact, used it, obviously not successfully enough, but used it to attack him for some of his climate policies. And so, in fact, when you put a price that consumers can see, that makes it very real in many ways. As you're saying, it does, it does provide more transparency in terms of people's environmental actions, but it also puts politicians more on the hook for making things more expensive in a way that's much less apparent when, for example, you're doling out government subsidies, right?
1: I think that's a good point. So I agree on the left hand, but on the right hand, let me push back a little bit. I think you're falling prey to the boogeyman. Uh, and I actually looked up the definition of boogeyman before this, uh, and okay. I make sure I got it right. So it's an imaginary evil spirit that is often used to frighten children. Uh, and I, th- you know, that is just a question of like the design features of the policy. Uh, Because there are many proposals floating around uh, about carbon taxes, where you would rebate the revenues directly to lower income Americans. You know, in terms of C-Touch feel, that'd be pretty good getting a check every month saying, you know, this is paid for, you know, by the carbon tax.
2: So, all right. So if that's the case, then make the argument of why you think that, for example, a carbon price might now... Have a little more life into it. A little uh, uh, have a slightly higher chance of being revived as a major policy tool. We obviously have seen the American Petroleum Institute raise this as a possibility. But tell me, what's your sense of of what's the chances of something? Like this?
1: Oh, I think. Look, I agree with you. Uh, I think it is still more likely than not that it will won- will not happen. But why might there be a surprising amount of momentum about it? I think the American Jobs Plan is going to be very expensive. Uh, there's going to need to be some revenue from that. There's different ways to get it. I think the Biden administration has been somewhat quiet about how many tons of CO2 the American Jobs Plan is going to reduce. And I think, you know, coming back to the acid test, do our children, their grandchildren, the planet care? I think that's a weakness as it's currently laid out. And, and so I sus- suspect that there could be some centrists out there who would like to be able to more tangibly predict, uh, say, this is how many tons we're going to get. And, you know, we're going to try and be careful with the nation's resources in getting those tons.
2: Now, let's move on to the social cost of carbon. <laughs> yes. All right. uh, yeah. Given that that is one example of a carbon price, which is seeing a heyday after lying largely dormant during the Trump administration, talk about what's why this tool even exists in the first place.
1: I like to say social cost of carbon is the most important number you've never heard of. Uh, and what is it? It is the monetary damages involved uh, from the release of an additional ton of CO2. So every time the Juliet household puts an extra ton of CO2 in the atmosphere, this is what the climate damages are that are spread around the world. Its history is that in 2009, Cass Sunstein and I were having lunch in the White House mess and the economy was losing 700,000 jobs a month, and I said, hmm, I don't know, Cass, you know, I'm not the political person in the White House for sure, but I do wonder if it's going to be possible to have a cap-and-trade, a past cap-and-trade that raises energy prices in the midst of all this, and, you know, Cass was not a political person either, he goes, hmm, seems like maybe something there, and so... The obvious thing that the president had made clear was that if the cap trade didn't work, there's going to be a regulatory approach uh, to addressing climate change. And to do regulations, you have to do cost-benefit analysis. And at the end, there was going to be this fight in the cost-benefit analysis of reducing tons versus dollars imposed on the economy. And it just felt like the tons were always going to lose because people love dollars and no one really knows what a ton of CO2 is. And so the social cost of carbon is a way to turn the reduction in tons into money and it unlocks cost-benefit analysis, and it unlocks being able to do regulations that impose costs on society in exchange for benefits.
2: So then obviously the Obama administration does develop a, a social cost on carbon and creates a working group to analyze how to update it, right? As of now, it stands at a little above $50 per ton.
1: The great Trump interlude uh, reduced it to somewhere between one and seven
2: dollars, and seven dollars, right? So then it then it goes down, it 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 plummets, uh, and then one of the first things that that President Biden does is actually indicates that he's going to revive the social cost of carbon, which then the administration has done, setting an initial price of you know whatever it is, like roughly fifty one dollars yeah. per ton or something and change. But the the story is not finished. Because there's now going to be a process that's going to last almost a year to come up with a more accurate, updated figure. So can you can you talk through what needs to be done to get, you know, truly accurate social cost of carbon?
1: So, and I'll just add a little more color. Uh, about the day of the inauguration of the Trump, uh, Trump uh, President Trump's inauguration, the National Academy of Sciences put out a report saying, hey, science... Uh, and economics has advanced a lot since 2009 and 2010, you guys, administration, should do all these things uh, to update it, to return the social cost to the frontier of understanding. Those things weren't done. Uh, in fact, we kind of went backwards in my view. And so what the Biden administration has set out to do, and they've given themselves a deadline, I think, of uh, February 2022, is to return the social cost of carbon to the frontier of Understanding. And I think there's a couple things. There's several things that would be on my to do list if I was tasked with doing that. Uh, one is bring in the frontier of climate science. So, right now, it's kind of using antiquated climate science, it doesn't always pick up like some of the extremes that the climate scientists now believe. The second is, and um, we were talking about this a few minutes ago, there's been this explosion of research uh, on what the economic impacts uh, will be. of are projected to be a climate change and not just what they'll be, but like how they're going to be distributed around the world, like which places are really going to be hit hard and which places will benefit and which places not that much will change. So those two things kind of just have to be done straight away in my view. The third is there's been just profound changes in international capital markets. And the consequence is that we should be using a much lower discount rate. It's a very wonky thing, but it's basically how you trade off things that happen today versus things that happen in the future. And since damages from climate change kind of happen over a very long time scale, it matters a great deal. So I I would say those are the three most important things. There's some others that are on the to-do list. I guess I would also raise up one other, which is, it's very commonsensical, which is there's a lot of uncertainty about climate change. And that uncertainty is both on like how large the economic damages will be and on how big The changes in climate will be. And currently in our valuation of social cost of carbon, we ignore uh, that uncertainty, but that just doesn't accord with our behavior. Like, I mean, I suspect uh, I I can see your office or study there. I suspect uh, in your home, you've actually bought homeowner's insurance in case something terrible happens. And the reason you buy it is you would rather give up a little money today just to protect yourself from some terrible outcome. And we haven't included that kind of certainty equivalence in the calculus of social cost of carbon. And I think we should, and I think it will actually have a uh, quite consequential impact.
2: Okay. And for those who want to know what is the, what will be the ultimate real policy impact of, for example, having, uh, you know, say a social cost of carbon that might be say a hundred dollars per ton, or maybe even higher than that. uh, If you're looking at decisions, whether it's requiring stricter pollution controls for power plants or a decision on whether to construct a new pipeline or highway, how will a higher social cost of carbon change decision-making on these huge huge projects?
1: Suppose we have a regulation that would reduce CO2 emissions by five tons uh, and it costs $400 to do it. At $51 a ton, that policy would look dumb we would have $255 of benefits and it would cost uh, $400. And why would we ever want to do something where the costs are larger than the benefits? But if the, we were miscalculating the social cost of carbon and it were actually a hundred dollars a ton, uh, suddenly this policy, which didn't look like such a good idea uh, would now look like a no brainer. You get $500 benefits and it would only cost 400 and, you know, full steam ahead. And so what it does, higher social cost carbon is it, makes all kinds of decisions to restrict emissions in the economy.
2: You know, it increases their benefits. And we're talking during a week where, for example, President Biden is going to be convening virtually leaders from all around the world to talk about what to do about climate change. We anticipate that the president is going to issue an executive order, which is going to integrate climate risk more fully into federal decisions. When you look at how much closer you think we are now to grappling with some of these issues, how do you view this landscape right now?
1: It's totally amazing. If you go back to the Kyoto Protocol in 1995, there was definitely some engagement by the U.S., kind of, I would call it a recognition of a problem. And then, you know, beginning in 2001, there was a long period where there was kind of retrenchment, if anything, or just kind of looking the other way and saying, well, we're not going to do anything to you guys, do something. and Kind of a standstill at that. And then the Obama administration kind of there was renewed effort uh, to try and engage. There was a the Paris Accord, there were some very important successes. And obviously big steps backward Trump administration. But at no point in American history has there been this degree of focus on climate change. And you know, the Biden administration is setting a very loud and clear message. Every agency feels like they have to have a climate person on their team. And the, you know, the appears the United States is about to, you know, double its commitment, its Paris commitment uh, for reductions by 2030. You know, climate is having a moment. Does it have to last forever? No. And that's part of why I think it's so important that there be tangible progress, not just a lot of focus, but really tangible progress. And I'm going to keep coming back to the acid test for tangible progress is going to be tons, tons, tons measured globally, not just uh, in the United States.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. thank you.
0: Michael Greenstone is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He's also director of the Becker Friedman Institute and the Energy Policy Institute at Chicago. Juliette Alperin is a longtime reporter for The Washington Post, where she's covered the environment, the White House, and the House of Representatives. She's the author of two books. Their conversation was held April 19th, days before President Biden's climate change summit. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.